The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, April 10th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pasca. The Social Progress Index is out. What's the Social Progress Index? Well, here in a TED Talk. Yeah, TED Talk. Anyway, it's Michael Green. He invented the Social Progress Index. And in this talk, he's describing what it does. It's better than GDP. Now, GDP was a catch-all stat. It's a pretty rough statistic. It was invented by an economist named Simon Kuznets. That's the predecessor of the Social Progress Index. But even at the time, Mr. Kuznets, as described by Michael Green, knew the limitations of GDP. The welfare of a nation can therefore scarcely be inferred from a measurement of national income as defined above. It's not the greatest soundbite in the world, um, but, and it's dressed up in the coarsest language of The Economist. But his message was clear. GDP is a tool to help us measure economic performance. It's not a measure of our well-being. So we have Social Progress Index, a grab bag, a raft of different things like well-being and access to opportunity. And the U.S. is not in the top 10. It's 16. But, you know, you got Norway, Iceland, New Zealand. It's like comparing a small liberal arts school with a huge state university. Yeah, they have small class sizes and the professors care, but our football team would kick their football team's ass. And I noticed kicking ass is not in this index. But the United States does have high crime. We're not doing so well. We're really surprisingly bad in infant mortality. Here's a couple things, and here's how we're doing. Uh, Opportunity. That's one of the main parts of the index. We are good. We're eighth in the world. We're behind Finland and England. Really? We're behind Finland and England? Anyway, death from infectious diseases. How do you think we're doing? Andrew, you want to guess? Uh, Tenth. We are 37th, behind Lebanon and Belarus. We're the 11th fattest country. Kuwait's the fattest, the most obese. It's all those formless garments. Saudi Arabia is the second most obese. Belize is the third most obese. We do pretty well in terms of, maybe you won't believe this, but gender in schools. Uh, We're sixth in women's average years in schools. We're second in having world-ranked universities behind the UK. I'm sorry, I know Cambridge and Oxford are the most famous, maybe. I put ours above there. And again, our football teams would kick their football team's ass. We are the first in the world in gender parity in second education. As many, actually, slightly more girls than boys go on to secondary education. And for the eighth year in a row, we are number one in the world in stuffed crust pizza. It's a celebration. On the show today, actor Vincent D'Onofrio talks about his latest role and the struggle of having an apostrophe in his last name. In the spiel, it's an Antan twig. But first, to Kansas and neighboring Oklahoma, where they're basically trying to illegalize abortion. Earlier this week, the state of Kansas passed a bill signed by Governor Sam Brownback illegalizing certain abortion procedures. Such a good idea that neighboring state Oklahoma passed that same bill two days later. Now, these procedures are to ban what's called dilution and extraction, sometimes called dilution and evacuation, which is the most common form of abortion past the first trimester. Now, even though only 10 percent or so of all abortions take place after the first trimester, we're still talking about 100,000 abortions, if the estimates of a million or so abortions per year in the United States are accurate. So basically what these laws do is illegalize 
Abortion. Joining me now is Dahlia Lithwick, who covers the courts for Slate to talk about the legal and practical aspects of these laws. Hello, Dahlia. Hello, Mike. So the Supreme Court has ruled in Roe versus Wade that abortion is protected by the Constitution. Now, if a state legislature, let's take something else protected by the Constitution, free speech. If a state legislature passed a law that didn't say you can't speak freely, but said a person cannot produce sounds from their mouth, which could be construed as offensive, that would be a violation in free speech. Isn't this pretty much what they're doing with the abortion law? Leading question, but I like it. I think that the one way to think about a lot of these new regulations is that they are deliberately passed knowing that they would flout the rule laid out in Roe v. Wade and later on in Casey, which kind of refined Roe. So these are really, I think the pro-life movement is saying, we want the court to revisit this. How can we get them to revisit it? Well, we're just going to keep passing laws that get closer and closer to the line. And then, in fact, cross the line laid out in Roe in an effort to force this issue back to the court. So I think one way to think about this is not, is this unconstitutional? I don't think anyone disputes, if you look at the line of, say, viability, that's the standard after Roe, uh, clearly these are uh, abortions that would happen pre-viability. So the question is, how do we get the court to look at this again, we think we have five votes. We didn't have five votes before. We're going to get them to look at it again by passing something where the line is not viability. It clearly violates Roe, and this will make the court hear it. I think that's the long game, Mike. Then what's in it for the legislatures, the governors, to pass these laws that don't include any medical language that just specifically describe the procedure? Why might the court or those inclined to essentially overturn Roe, why might the justices on the court who would be inclined to overturn Roe be attracted to that sort of language? Well, don't forget they were invited to do that in 2007, the last time the court heard a major abortion case. And yes, it's been that long. The court heard Gonzalez versus Carhartt. And that, as you may recall, was the partial birth abortion ban that was passed by Congress. The court had very, very earlier, much earlier before that, struck down the same or substantially the same ban. But looking at it again in 2007, Five four, the court for the first time ever said, you know what, we're going to let this partial birth abortion ban stand, and we're not going to make an exception uh, for the health of the mother. This is the first time the court does that, and what it does is invite this whole raft of subsequent laws that are passed that look very, very familiar to folks who are following the abortion wars in this country that are crafted to look like what the court upheld in 2007. So first of all, I think the court said, hey, maybe some of these exceptions are now in play. But more importantly, if you look at the language of these new, quote, partial dismemberment laws, they echo almost exactly the language of the so-called partial birth abortion laws that were uh, pretty much approved by the Supreme Court. So this is really, I think it's important to see this as a second salvo post Gonzalez versus Carhartt, an effort to say this looks an awful lot like what the court hated in 2007. Maybe we could get them to hate the D&E too. Let's be fair. Let's try to be as fair as possible to the intellectual justification that will be put forth or the intellectual argument, justifications may be a charge term, by an Alito or Scalia or, you know, probably Roberts and Thomas. Now, they at least give lip service to the idea of stare decisis, precedent. 
So I don't know that they'd be so eager to flat out overturn Roe versus Wade per se. They found in the so-called partial birth abortion law, and they might find in a law like this another reason, another justification where they could say, we're still respecting stare decisis. We're not overturning Roe versus Wade, but here's the legal argument why this is different. What would they say? Well, you know, first of all, I think that you may not have as many votes that are respectful of the holding in Roe as you think. I think that uh, this court might actually be poised to overturn Roe. I think that the other thing that's happened is, why hasn't the court heard a major abortion case since 2007? Because the court doesn't have to, because the states are passing hundreds, literally, of laws that are making abortion all but impossible in certain states. And I think that the court is perfectly happy saying, we can just let this play out on the ground. You know, we can just let this happen not on our watch, but on the state watch. And I think that's another way that the justices are allowing this to go forward. But if you think about the rationale, the principal rationale that Justice Kennedy uh, used, the logic that he used when he decided uh, the Gonzalez case in 2007 and wrote for the majority, he said he was upholding the core of Roe, but also that some things are just Horrible. And in this case, not only was the procedure that was the uh, intact uh, DNE or the DNX that the court said, we're okay getting rid of this, not only was the procedure horrible, but he had a lot of really weird language about solicitude for the mother and mothers who come to regret their abortions. He cited all sorts of literature suggesting that we need to be extra protective of women who may come to regret their decisions. And If you look at that logic, that's the logic that, in fact, animates so many of the post-2007 laws that have gone into effect, right? This is the reason for the transvaginal ultrasound, for these scripts that warn mothers of what they're doing, for these 72-hour waiting periods. It's all shifted from we're going to protect life to we're going to protect mothers who may be making bad decisions. We're going to give them more information so they can make better decisions. And that actually has been the logic that has animated not just the post-2007 thinking at the court, I think, but some of the really, really incredibly paternalistic laws that have passed in the states and been signed off on in the states as we're just helping moms make better decisions. We think they're going to really be sorry afterwards. Dahlia Lithwick covers the courts for Slate and her podcast, Amicus, the greatest. Thank you, Dahlia. Oh, thank you so much, Mike. When you think of great character actors, guys who played many roles and many kinds of roles, Malkovich or Gary Oldham or Lee J. Cobb or Martin Balsam, they're often chameleons, not just in ability, but in look. So let's think about Vincent D'Onofrio. This is a guy who is, let's say it, singular looking, as he first showed audiences on a wide scale in Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. I am in a world of shit. On Law and Order Criminal Intent, D'Onofrio's detective Robert Gorin is a collection of quirks and even spasms that sometimes seem to electrify the actor's six foot four inch frame. My mother taught me how to tell when someone is lying. You want to know the secret? Come on, Dennis, say it! Boo! Their ears, they start turning red. 
Of course, D'Onofrio has also played Abby Hoffman, who is five foot seven in real life. All of this speaks to his great ability. Well, now, Vincent D'Onofrio has been cast in a new movie called Broken Horses, where he's been cast as Julius Hench. Well, welcome home, kid. You got to put him to sleep. There's a lot of bad people out there, Jake. Somebody's got to stop. Hello, Vincent D'Onofrio. Hey, man. How are you? I'm well. Tell me about uh, who is this guy, Julius Hench. Tell me about your character in this film. He's a guy who owns a lot of land near uh, Mexico. He gets uh, involved in uh, smuggling across the border of uh, all kinds of things, including drugs. He separates these two brothers. He takes one under his wing and turns him into a criminal. His other brother goes away, but then eventually comes back to try and get his um, the brothers that I've corrupted away from me. Now, the director of the film, Vinod Chopra, who is Indian and um, talks about, I've read interviews where he's talked about the magic of cinema and how he learned about America through cinema. At one point, he says in the production notes, which they give out, it's a quintessentially Indian motif of two brothers. I was thinking about this. I think it's a quintessentially human motif of two brothers, don't you? Yeah. He thinks in terms of India, Vinod. He's a renowned filmmaker over there. You know, he's one of the biggest filmmakers out there that they have. There's a crazy scene in the film where Vincent D'Onofrio actually uh, gets slapped. We needed finally fire to hit his face, and we needed the skin of his face to move in a certain fashion in extreme slow motion. I couldn't believe that he just said, it's okay, you can slap me. It was incredible to work with him. I mean, he's a super, super talented uh, director. He's one of the best directors I've ever worked with. So I mentioned in the intro, you're like 6'3", 6'4", you're a big guy. Some roles kind of, well, sometimes you're playing a character based on a real person who's much smaller, but an actor uses his body in different ways. What Are, are there ways with some characters you kind of want to communicate that you're big and large and imposing, which I could imagine how you would do that. But what about the opposite? How can you ever kind of, as, given the size you are, communicate that you, the character is a little smaller? It depends on the character you're playing, you know, but it's all in, in your approach and your how timid you may act the part or how subtle you may be. or You know, it's all about posture and and the tone in your voice and where you are emotionally in the story. You know, there's many different approaches. So, you, I mean, the answer to your question is, yeah, it's possible, and, and that's my job. Yeah, and in this role in Broken Horses as Julius Hench, he could be a powerful guy, and yet you didn't play him. I didn't sense that you played him just as a straight down the line, you know, imposing heavy. There was a lot of subtlety there. So what were uh, some of your choices in terms of communicating that? Well, I think it was the relationship with Chris Marquette, the actor that plays the kid that I'm manipulating. We would always make sure we were very present and in the moment. I know that sounds very actory, but, you know, you're sitting there and there's a lot of people all around you and the camera's rolling and you're saying somebody else's words. And so you really have to start before you even begin. You really have to make sure that you're present with the other person and that you're connected. Being on uh, Law & Order Criminal Intent, playing the same character for a decade, what'd that give you as an actor? Um, well, it, it, you, you definitely learn to act. You know, like, if you didn't know already, you're, you're going to have a lot of chops by the time you get out of something like that. I mean, that's a, 
it's a real grind and there's a lot of dialogue and you can really hone your craft on something like that. You know, Law & Order is a, such an institution for a lot of reasons, but one of it is it's familiar. You could kind of check in on any Law and & Order and know the general structure. Yet as an actor, I would imagine that could be limiting. So, you know, seasons in, did you say my character has to change? I want to take them to different places. Was there a tension as far as that went? Um, sometimes. I mean, sometimes I would ask to do certain things, but, you know, it was such a volatile character. I think that the writers knew that they could switch it up and do different things with them at different times. I mean, on occasion, I would suggest things, but not very often. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned the showrunner in- on a television show is the boss, and you got to be careful with the politics. Yeah, it is a sweet gig, right? You don't want to jeopardize that. All right. Yeah. There's one other question that I want to ask, which is I've seen in interviews or profiles of you, you described with words like shyness or introvert. And it seems like there are so many actors like Pacino and De Niro who are on that end of the spectrum. And then there are others like Kevin Spacey and Alec Baldwin, you know, these extroverts who are larger than life even when they don't have a character written for them. It's amazing to me that both personality types can result in great acting. And I was wondering if you ever thought it might be easier uh, for you and your craft if you were naturally an extrovert. Or, on the other hand, maybe you think that as a person who takes things in more than they act out, maybe it's easier for you to observe. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that acting introversion, extroversion aspect. I... I I do. I, it's a very good question. I've never been asked that question in all these years, so congratulations on that. All right. <laughs> Thanks. Um, <laughs> the, I think when I was younger, I could, I it could have helped me to be a more, to, to have been a, a bit more extroverted and more social. I think it probably would have helped me. I did okay without it, but I had a lot of friends that were very good at being social and are extroverts and are very good, very, very good actors. And Maybe it's true. Maybe I, I could have used a bit of that when I was younger. I mean, these days, you know, I have a wife and I have children and I've, I have a full life, so it doesn't matter if I'm introverted or extroverted. I meet all my responsibilities in life and I have as much fun as I can with my children and in my work and with my friends. And so it's different when you get older. But when I was younger, I think, um, yeah, I think you're onto something there. I think it, uh, I think it might have helped a bit. But, you know, I did okay without it. Yeah. Maybe the actors who are introverted, they often seem to be able to play explosive characters really well. Again, I wonder if there's something to that. <laughs> Maybe there is. Have you put as much thought as it sounds like you have into this, or are you just winging it? No, I swear. Because I, I, I saw... Pacino accept an award once and it was Kevin Spacey who gave him the award and they just discussed it a little bit and Pacino said he couldn't figure it out and uh, Spacey said he couldn't figure it out and they both thought it was a mystery so every time I talk to an actor who's clearly on one end of the scale I uh, pursue it and eventually if I interview 100 actors I'll figure out something I don't know I think you may be onto something I, I have no idea actually I think it's best I don't explore that and you keep exploring it yeah exactly like a baseball player doesn't think about when the hot streak's going well I understand 
<laughs> Vincent D'Onofrio's new role is uh, as Julius Hench in the new movie Broken Horses. Thank you so much, Vincent. Pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Pleasure. Well, I hope that interview made you happy. If not, here's a word from my friend Gretchen Rubin on that subject precisely. I'm Gretchen Rubin. On this week's episode of Happier, my sister Elizabeth and I discuss why you should sometimes treat yourself like you treat a toddler, how to work on a good habit when your partner isn't into it, and much more. You'll find Happier at iTunes.com Panoply or at Panoply.fm. And now the spiel, another Antan twig. Correction. Mad Men's John Hamm is not the voice of BMW, as I said. He is the voice of Mercedes-Benz. He's also the voice of John Hamm's John Hamm. Let's face it. We live in a fast-paced world. But if you're as busy as I am, every day you have to make a decision. Am I going to eat lunch, or am I going to go to the bathroom? Well, now you never have to make that choice again. Each John Hamm's John Hamm dispenser is located opposite the toilet paper dispenser. You never get confused. And unlike other bathroom ham dispensers, John Ham's John Ham has only the finest boar's head oven roasted ham. Mmm, that's good ham. John Ham, it isn't a spaceship, it's a time machine. It goes backwards, forwards, takes us to the place where we ache to go again. I regret the error. And this is the spot where we collect our corrections. Well, let's be fair, some of our corrections, because I do pronounce a lot of proper names incorrectly. But we build a monument to these corrections, these some of these corrections, the select collections of corrections, erection. That is what we call the monument. We call this obelisk the Antan Twig. Now, Antan Twig is an old English word for a three-week period, like Fortnite is for a two-week period, but it's a fortnight plus 50%. But I was traveling last Friday, so this is not actually a three-week period. It's the less linguistically special monthly check-in, not an Antan Twig. But as we go to a correction noticed by Andy Kleinman, not all mistakes were made literally within the past month. In fact, we aired a bit of my announcing right after college, a tape I put together of sports scores. So 19 years ago, May 5th, 1996, the Brewers were facing the Orioles with the Brew Crew already up by a score of 10 to 1. Jeff Cirillo's three-run home run off Jimmy Myers made the game 13 to 1, and that's where it ended. So what did I say? Milwaukee handing it to the Orioles by a 12-1 margin. Wow, Andy Kleinman, good research. You not only offer a valuable correction, you enter your name in the running to be named a lobstar. Lobstars are the just listener, Facebooker, Twitterer, subredditor, or LARPer who contributes, cajoles, corrects, or corresponds commendably. Another lobstar runner-up, whose name has been lost to history, wrote to me and objected to when I asserted that Hootie and the Blowfish were the best band from South Carolina. He said Marshall Tucker, the Marshall Tucker band, was the best band from South Carolina. Now, here's my problem with Marshall Tucker. He's going to take a freight train down to the station. He don't care where it goes. He's 
got to climb a mountain, the highest mountain. That'd be Everest, by the way. Jump off. Nobody going to know. Someone's going to know. I mean, this was the first single off your debut album. Went to number 75. So some people will know. And I get the idea. I get what you're trying to do. You're trying to tell everyone that you're going to crawl inside a hole and die. It's a cry for help. Listen, we have to go back to the freight train part. If you are intent on offing yourself, why a freight train? Take a passenger train. Sure, it'll cost a couple extra bucks, but the freight train is loaded, you might say freighted, with complications. Someone could catch you, someone could kick you off the train. Just buy a damn ticket on a regular train. So why is this guy so distraught? Well, uh, of course, it's a woman. Can't you see? Always a woman leading to the freight train fantasy. What did she do? Was she no good? Did she cheat on you? Did she step out on you with some handsome Dan? Nope. It was a simple breach of etiquette. That's it. It's not that she left, which is troubling. I would give you that. Maybe not train till they run out of tracks troubling, but troubling. It's that she didn't say goodbye. Now, it'd be interesting if John Bon Jovi covered this song right before launching into Never Say Goodbye. That'd be a mixed message. But that is all. That is why Marshall Tucker is so upset. I think we put in our society way, way too much emphasis on the means of breakup, right? She broke up with me via text. Well, what would be better? Hey, you know what? Let's go out to a restaurant. You want some soup? Have some soup. I love the salad. The chicken paillard. You know what? It's not really cooked all the way through. Could you send it back? Oh, by the way, we're breaking up. How about some dessert? You want some rice pudding? Or the whole thing about being fired over the phone. This is such a huge thing. I remember I was working for NPR when Juan Williams was fired. and It was a whole huge kerfuffle. But one of the things, a major arrow in his quiver of disquiet, and he kept saying this at every interview, and they fired me over the phone. Juan, what would be better? Juan, you know what? Can you come in? Hi. Thanks. Listen, thanks. I know you had a sleepless night. I know you got up early. I know you put on a tie. I know you fought traffic. I know you paid for parking. I know you waited for five minutes outside my office. Thanks for doing all that. You're fired. Why would that be better? You know, HR has some forms for you. Might I suggest you take some time, clear your head, you know, ride a southbound all the way to Georgia, to the train. It run out of track. But anyway, thanks for coming in, Juan. And no, we don't validate. So after I spieled about a quote-unquote hunger strike that was actually just refusing some solid food for a few days by students in New York who wanted the DREAM Act put into the budget, well, I have an update on that. The strike lasted a week from March 25th through April 1st. The students reported being lightheaded when all they subsisted on was water. It was clear that the DREAM Act wasn't put in the budget, and then the kids started eating again. I said this wasn't really a hunger strike. I said there were no lives at stake. I'm glad there were no lives at stake, but it was overcovered by the media. Heather Kovich wrote to me and said, she loves the show, listens every day, I listened to the scorn for the hunger striking students. I'm the granddaughter of an IRA hunger striker who went 27 days in 1923 before he decided to give up, parentheses, survive. The spiel made me pull out his diary from the hunger strike and read it again. 
I had forgotten how grim it actually was. The only thing that passed his lips were water, communion, and cigarettes. The guards regularly taunted him by leaving bread and broth at the door of his cell and telling him falsely that everyone else had abandoned the strike. Well, his experience in Dublin was completely different from these New York students. The motives were the same. They wanted attention and control over their situation. In my grandfather's case, he wanted to be recognized as a political prisoner. He wanted better conditions. Hunger strikes have always been about the symbolism, not about the suicide. If students can drum up this massive amount of press coverage with a safer version of the protest, good for them. I like that letter. Thank you for sending it to me, Heather. And I wanted to also cite for meritorious achievement in a much less serious vein, Matthew Gertner. I was interviewing Zephyr Teachout. She is the scourge of corruption. And we were discussing the New York governor's remuneration by a large media company for a book that didn't sell. And Matthew Gertner said, I should have used the phrase quid pro cuomo. Yes, I should have. But the lobster of this Antan twig goes to Brian Jacobson of Needham, Massachusetts. I was talking about a Wall Street Journal article that cited 20 million hectoliters. And then they tried to get us in the frame of what that meant by comparing it to a huge number of Olympic swimming pools. I suggested oil tankers. Brian had a much better idea. Compare it to the song Bottles of Beer on the Wall. Divided by 12-ounce bottles of beer, he calculated it would be 5.63 billion bottles of beer on the wall. You have to sing the entire song 56.9 million times, starting with 99 bottles of beer on the wall, to account for these bottles. Given that a single round of the song takes approximately eight seconds to sing 99 bottles of beer on the wall, 99 bottles of beer, take one down, pass it around, 98 bottles of beer on the wall. Is that eight seconds? Anyway, calculates to 13 minutes for a full song, 12 million hours to complete the song. That's 500,000 days or 1,400 years. While I recognize this does not make it easier to picture the quantity of lager, it does provide a unique unit of measure that I think we could all coalesce behind. Yes, yes, that is the right answer, Brian Jacobson. You're the lobster of the Antan Twig. That's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, the GIST producer, is going to take a tramp steamer all the way to Iceland till that boat run out of wet. Joel Meyer, managing producer of Slate Podcast, is going to take a Q-tip, a fuzzy white Q-tip. He's going to stick it right inside his ear. Andy Bowers, executive producer, is going to eat a meal, a quite big meal. Then he's going to swim within the quarter hour. Guests of the gist stay in the Ulaanbaatar Hyatt, featuring Raging Water Indoor Water Park and the Falconry Center. Part of the Ulaanbaatar Chamber of Commerce 2015 initiative, Ulaanbaatar, it taint just yurts. The gist, I'm going to book an air trip, an international air trip. I'm going to arrive to the airport less than two hours beforehand. Such is the effect of that woman on me. Thanks for listening. Celebration. 